Good evening. It's good to see all those who have come back to this place. And we're going to continue our study on building true Christian character and discovering the authentic Christian life. We've talked about how that this is so important because it is the essence of Christianity to change from a self-centered to a God-centered life. It's important that we mature enough to develop a, an awareness or a, a, a reality of things that are important to us, a system of priorities that are not just fleshly in nature. We must mature from being fleshly in, in our priorities to becoming spiritually minded in our priorities. We become more mature as this growth process takes place in our lives. We've talked about the need and the necessity for change because it is a command of God in Acts 17 and verse 30. Also Luke 13 and 3 and also verse 5 tell us that without repentance there is no salvation. One cannot be saved. If there was no need for us to change from a self-centered, fleshly, indulgent lifestyle, then why did Jesus come at all? If Jesus was going to save those who are fleshly minded, those who are self-centered in this world, why did he ever come and command man to have a different perspective? Now listen, that is the essence of what we're talking about tonight, is understanding our purpose differently than those who are just of a worldly mindset. And so God commands us in Acts 17 to change, to repent, as the word means. The word repentance demands a change, a change of direction, a change of loyalty. There are many things that the word repentance means. But tonight, we want to take it to some of the primary changes that, we're, that we uh, need to focus on in order to bring about the true changes in character that are necessary. Last night, I gave you some homework. I asked you to identify some room for growth within us. Because many of us, while recognizing a need to be humble, are in reality not very humble before our God. We may recognize we're not divine in character. We don't have the fruits of the spirits. We don't have the Christian graces that are mentioned in 2 Peter, the first chapter. We have not added to our knowledge virtue. We have not added to our virtue, uh, godliness, all of those other qualities and love in our lives. We don't have the qualities of Christ. We may look nothing or act nothing or have none of the character traits of Jesus. And yet... We deceive ourselves into thinking that we're Christian in some way, shape, or form. Possibly because we live in a Christian country. Probably because we observe Christian cultural habits. Or maybe just because we attend services regularly. Well, my friends, sitting in a church building, as, we've, as has often been said before, doesn't make, uh, sitting in a building doesn't make us any more a Christian than sitting in a garage makes us a car. It just doesn't happen that way. Something within us, it's not where we are in locality, it's where we are in character that we're being talked about. And so tonight we're going to address the very issue of character. First of all, you'll notice during our studies, during the last two lessons, we've talked about Matthew 23 and verse 23, where there Jesus specifically points out, listen, you've got to clean the inside and the outside of the cup. Clean the inside first, and then you'll, the outside will clean itself, basically, is what the text is trying to say there in that passage. 
Jesus tells us what is inside of us is very much important because outwardly we may look like a whitewashed sepulcher. In other words, we may be pure. We may look, there's no mold on the outside of a sepulcher. It's whitewashed. It looks white. It looks unstained. But inwardly it's full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He said inwardly, it is very important what we are. Jesus, whenever he came here, one of the major things he preached about was the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. And if you want to go into Matthew 23, read the rest of the chapter. It's full of his rebuke to people who thought one thing, who felt one thing, but did something completely another. So, in our addressing Christian character, we've got to be aware that outwardly, we may have everything organized. Everything may seemingly seem as if we are Christians. But in reality, the character has not changed. The attitudes have not changed. The motives have not changed. We find that it just may be easier for us to behave like a Christian rather than really be one within our hearts and minds. Rather than have that devotion of serving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we may be serving God only when it's convenient. And so tonight, we want to talk about one of the first steps the infancy, if you will, first steps of Christianity and talk about how to bring about real change by making sure that we're motivated by the right things. If you will, please turn in your scriptures to Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2. Now there are many things here in this chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, that talk about Christian, uh, Christians and what a Christian is. Yeah, I just want to remind you, uh, just a little review of some of the verses that we've, listened, we've looked at before. Christianity is essentially taking upon ourselves the following of Jesus Christ. That's what the word Christian means, a follower of Jesus Christ. We've looked at Luke 6 and verse 40, which tells us that a disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher, will be like the teacher. And that's what we're supposed to be doing is learning from Christ, who is the exact representation of the mind of God. He is the word expressed. Oh, I wish we had time to, to talk about John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But then it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld him. We beheld him. My friends, that is the example that is taught to us about Jesus Christ's purpose in coming here, is to be an expression of the very mind of God in an example form, in a life form, if you will. God just didn't say these things. He lived it out for us. He left us an example, the Bible says, that we should follow in His steps there are so many passages that come to our minds tonight. But one is found, if you'll please, just if you've opened to Peter, look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. You know, so many. I want, I want us just to realize something unique in history. You know, we live in the age where the church is more educated than it's ever been before. Think about that for a moment. Up until the last hundred or so years, almost within the last 150 years, the majority of the people on the earth did not go to school, period. And many of us, <laughs> we don't appreciate what we have. I'll tell you that for sure. 
But more than that, I would venture to say most of us here tonight are, are literate. Most of us have the ability to read. Most of us have copies of the Scriptures, maybe multiple copies of the Scriptures. What a blessed church we are. There are many on the face of the earth that would love to have what we have and don't have it available to them. But throughout history, the church has not been so blessed that people could have copies of the Word of God in their home. How did they live such holy lives? How did Christianity have such an impact on Western culture and thinking? Those of you who have studied Western culture, I want you to ask yourself the question, how did Christianity have such an impact on a basically a largely illiterate group of people throughout history? I'll tell you how it happened. They listened to the stories in the scriptures. They got familiar with the person that these stories described, that the gospels described. And they realized that even though they might not be intellectual, even though they might not be literate, even though they may not have but one copy per congregation of the word of God, there is something that could be with them every moment of their life. And that was the example of Jesus and the way he lived. The Bible says, I want you to think about Jesus. He left you an example for you to follow in his steps. And those who followed Christ before they made decisions, before they acted and reacted to persecution, to trials, to tribulations, they would ask themselves, How would Jesus behave in this situation? They got the main point of the example of Jesus. They may not understand doctrine. They may not be philosophical. They may not be theological. But my friends, they got one point really clear. If it wasn't like Jesus acted, they shouldn't do it. That was the essence of what they got. And they asked themselves, is following in this path the path that Jesus trod, am I stepping in his steps? Am I acting like he acted? Am I behaving as he behaved? Is my attitude similar to his? His desire was to please his Father in heaven. He prayed often, I need to do those kinds of things. And so they imitated Jesus as best as they possibly could. We find it in Romans 8, 29. The Bible, as we've mentioned this week, tells us God predestined that we who are Christians, those of us who are going to be pleasing to God, would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This was his predestined purpose, that we imitate Jesus in a very real term. We've talked about 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 8. We're being transformed by this knowledge as well. Oh, there are so many more passages we could go into. But the basic fact is all of us here should recognize is being a Christian isn't just like a club that you belong to and wear a name. It implies a certain kind of relationship to the example Jesus Christ. It implies that we are imitators of him, period. That's what the word implies. And we wear his name, we had better been trying to imitate him. And that doesn't mean, as I've pointed out before, young people, listen, young children, that doesn't mean you're supposed to try to imitate his miracles. That doesn't mean you're supposed to try to imitate his outward appearance. It means you're supposed to try to imitate his character and his heart. That's what we're supposed to be trying to imitate. So these are the things that the Bible sets as an example for us. Well, the Bible tells us here in Peter, if you're, if you're in 2 Peter, just go back to chapter 2, verse 1. And here he starts out with young Christians telling them some specific points that they need to change in that they need to change about. And if it was good back then, it's good for us today too. 
It's applicable to us today too. So let's take the lesson of what was given to them in their early stages of Christianity. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice. Now let's define some of these words. I'm reading from New American Standard, and so the Greek definitions oftentimes are the same given the translation, but the word, uh, sometimes they're a little bit different. The word malice, what does the word malice mean? Well, literally, when you look it up, it means active ill will. But, But what does that mean, active ill will? It means whenever you don't want somebody to be blessed is what it means. When you know somebody and you really would like to see them hit the pavement. Have you ever seen skateboarders? (laughs) Have you ever seen people doing some of those things in those extreme sports? And you kind of go, this is real interesting, but I'd like one just to see them crash. Well, (laughs) that's not malice when we see it on TV. That's just wanting to see them be human. But when we're talking spiritually about someone, That's a whole different thing. Whenever we have active ill will, when we want to see somebody hurt spiritually, when we want to see somebody fail, when we want to see their pride smudged, when we want to see their character assassinated, when we want to see them disrespected, when we want to see them in some way hurt, that's active ill will. That's malice. And the Bible says you no longer put that into your heart. Why was this put in Peter? Have you ever wondered why it's one of the first things mentioned? Well, have you read the book of Acts very much and analyzed what the issues were in the early church? Wasn't there a big problem between the Jews and the Gentiles? Oh, yeah. Wasn't there a big problem not only just between Jews and Gentiles? Wasn't there a problem between rich and poor? Yes, there was. The book of James had to write and he had to tell them, listen, if you say to a poor man that comes into your assembly, sit here at my footstool and yet give preference to the rich man, have you not become sinners? He tells them. Have you not become judges with evil motives? Haven't you not done those things which are wrong? Jesus didn't act this way. He died for everybody. You're not imitating his heart when you have active ill will toward those who are rich. When you have active ill will toward those who are poor. When you have active ill will toward those who are Gentiles. When you have active ill will toward those who are Jews. Some of those attitudes are still present today in the Middle East, guys. The very attitudes Jesus was talking about back then are still around today. Because what happens in the church is that Jesus puts them together rather than we put them together. You see, we don't get to pick who gets into the church. If we got to pick... (laughs) The church would reflect just a certain kind of socioeconomic class. People just like us, probably. And unfortunately, that's what happens sometimes in the church, too. We have to get out of that little box. We have to seek people that Jesus is seeking and love those whom God loves and go after those whom Jesus died for. And it wasn't just us. And it wasn't people just like us, either. So, God says, listen... If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a follower of me, you're going to have to view others like I view them. So you're going to have to get rid of your racial prejudice. You're going to have to get rid of your socioeconomic prejudice. You're going to have to get rid of all of that garbage, and you're going to have to get it out, because if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to have my heart. You're going to have to have my heart. So, get rid of malice. Notice what he goes on to say. And all deceit and hypocrisy. Deceit. Deceit means deceivableness or or 
really, if you will, it means leaving the wrong impression with someone, whether it's for your benefit or not. You get rid of deceit. A half lie is nothing more than a full lie in disguise. That's all it is. Deceit is deceit. And if there's anybody in whom there was no deceit, it was Jesus. One of the things that is universal throughout the world is nobody likes a liar. Nobody. Anybody in any culture that lies or deceives their mate or deceives someone else, they get weeded out of the business community. They get weeded out of the social community. They get weeded out. People do not like dishonest people everywhere in the world. <laughs> and Jesus, Jesus, even sinners, I find it so ironic when sinners get mad at somebody for being dishonest, even though they've got no basis for their morality, they'll still be upset about that. If it's survival of the, of the fittest, you know, why don't you honor someone that lies? Well, no, 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 no. See, universally, everybody hates deceit. Everybody. And Jesus had no deceit. Jesus didn't behave in deceit in any way. He was totally upfront with everyone. And so he's getting down to basics. He says, listen, in imitating Jesus, this is an issue of character. He said, I want you to get rid of malice. I want you to get rid of deceit. And I want you to get rid of, the next word is, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Notice, deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Come back tomorrow night and we're going to talk about envy a little bit. And we're going to talk about slander later on in the week. But notice, he's going to say, get rid of all of these things. Get them out of your life. Notice verse 2. Like newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, or long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, he is addressing this to newborn Christians, to babes in Christ. And he says, here's one of the first things I want you to get at. To be a Christian, here are the issues of importance. There are issues of malice, that is your heart, how you feel about others. There's issues of deceit, that is leaving the wrong impression. You can no longer be that way in any, in any way, shape, or form. And I want to address the issue of hypocrisy. Because in hypocrisy, we have the issue of character brought up that's so vitally important. Get rid of hypocrisy. Well, what is hypocrisy a little bit? We want to talk about that because whenever we're talking about change, change is not evident. Change In a hypocrite, change is something that it looks like on the outside that they have changed. In other words, outwardly, it appears that they're doing all the right stuff. They're saying all the right things. But hypocrisy has one real problem, and that is the inside. The inside is the issue. The inside, it's a character issue. And that's why it's so important at the beginning of Christianity that we understand, God wants us to understand, Christianity isn't a club that any character can belong to. Whenever you become a Christian, you address, you address your inner character. This is a character issue. Which brings us to the first real point of what hypocrisy is. You know, what is, where did we get the word hypocrisy in our language? Well, hypocr hypocrisy in the Greek is from a word which uh, is really comes from a person. 
It comes from a person. You know, whenever you talk about uh, people, sometimes we use words to talk about uh, certain kinds of attitudes. And I hope there's no postal workers here tonight. But what do you mean whenever you say somebody goes postal? They went postal. Well, that has kind of come into the way we use language. It's in the dictionary. It's in the English Oxford Dictionary. Now, what does that mean? Going postal. Well, it means that there were post men who evidently, or both men or women who got up to it, and finally they just broke and they just kill people and they explode and everything like that. That's what it means, going postal. Well, you and I both know that all, all post office employees are not that way, so we don't want to offend anybody here this evening. We know that. But whenever we say that, we're talking about certain attributes or a certain character. Everybody here knew what I meant whenever I said that. I saw, I saw a recognition across the whole crowd tonight whenever we said somebody went postal. Well, hypocrisy is that same kind of word. It comes from a person. Hypocrius was a Greek actor. He was a man. And he was a good actor. In fact, when this, first, this word first came into its culture of being used, it was used as a, as a virtuous word. If somebody was a great actor, they were said to be followers or students of Hippocrates. And they said, man, he's a great hypocrite. And they used it positively. And it meant that this person is able to really portray one kind of character, but we know he's an actor. We know that's not who he really is. But he's good at play acting. He's good at pretense. And so, because of that, we will give him the honor of calling him a hypocrite. Well, it didn't take very long for it to get to be from a, a, a virtuous word to an unvirtuous word. <laughs> it didn't take very long at all. Because then people began to use the word of people who were guilty of hypocrisy. In other words, they were play-acting. They would say one thing or be very sarcastic. And they would say they, they, these other people who played a part but were exposed as being not really being that kind of person, they were called hypocrites. Hypocrites. And that's how this word came into meaning. And Jesus used it often. He said the scribes and Pharisees, they play a part. Outwardly, they appear to be beautiful, he says. Outwardly, here's what they portray. Whatever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do you not? After their works, for they say and do not. Oh, he often said, listen, they portray. They say that they're so loving, so prayerful to God, but they do it all, Matthew 23, to be seen of men. It wasn't to please God. It was for the applause. That's what they did it for. The same reason hypocrisy, Hippocrates got it, was for the applause. He wanted the part playing. Well, this brings us to some of the first character traits of hypocrisy. We want to identify, you may want to know if you're guilty of this thing. If the Bible says, like newborn babes desires the sincere milk of the word, and it tells us putting aside verse 2, Chapter 2, verse 1 there, putting this aside, how do I make sure that I'm putting this aside? I do not want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to acquire the characteristics of a hypocrite. So how can I know if I'm a hypocrite or not? Well, first of all, perception isn't the criteria. Perception isn't the criteria. Like we've said, it has to do with attitudes. So let's look at the attitudes that are portrayed to us in the scriptures. First of all, the attitude of a hypocrite, 
Now, a hypocrite pays more attention to reputation, reputation than character. A hypocrite pays more attention to his reputation than the character. How others perceive a hypocrite or him is the most preeminent concern that he has. Let's look at some passages. In Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew 6, and starting reading verse 2, it says, So then, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Ah, here's a point. He says, listen, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. This person's primary motive is to have the attention of men. And so it's men's response that they're after. It's reputation. It's that kind of thing that they're really mostly concerned about. They want the reward of men, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. In other words, when a hypocrite gets his human audience to respond, God says they have what they went after. And that's all the reward they're going to get. When a hypocrite gets the applause, that's all that's being given to him. That's all. That's all an actor gets. When the applause is over, it's over, folks. They get no virtue in God's eyes. They get no praise in God's eyes. They went after the attention of men, and whenever they got it, that was all that they got. And notice what he goes on to say. But when you, verse 3, give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. There you go. He says, whenever you do good works, here's where the character shines, is whenever it's done without the motive of men's approval. (laughs) Now we've got it. What are you when nobody's looking? Would you do it if nobody gave you any praise? There's the issue. When the only person that knows is God, where then is your motive? A lot of times we're only motivated whenever others are going to know. Is that the only time you're a Christian? When you do Christian service? Is when somebody's going to notice? Or when God asks us to do it? My friends, who is more important to us? The applause of men or the approval of God? Where is the motivation? There's how to tell. There's how to tell right there. Whenever we pay more attention to reputation than character, when we want to know what men think more importantly than what God thinks, then that's a sign that we're not doing it for the right reason and that we may be indeed a hypocrite. Notice verse 4, so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God takes time to point out to us. He says, listen, where's your... Wind for your sails. Is it the approval of men or the approval of God? If it's of God, you'll do it in secret when no men know. And whenever you get no approval, when you get no applause, you will still be motivated to do Christian service. There we go. Look also in verse verse 5. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, 
They have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Evidently, God is more impressed when somebody obeys Him without an audience. Maybe that's a point. That's the whole point here. He is asking these people when they're hearing his message to clarify their character. What are you when nobody's looking? That's what you really are. That's what you really are. Notice what he goes on down in verse 16 to say. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but in your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You know, one of the things that I wanted to point out in this little bulletin is if you'll... uh, On page two of the bulletin, if you have it, this is a real good thing to read every once in a while, and that's why I sent it to Bob. It's really helpful sometimes to get a handle on, listen to this, the difference between self-righteous service and really serving God. He says, listen, let me share some thoughts that contrast self-righteous service with true service. This is from a book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Listen, self-righteous service comes through effort for glory. True service comes from realizing our abilities are from God. Self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. True service finds it almost impossible to distinguish the small service from the large service. Self-righteous service requires external reward. True service rests content in anonymity. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. True service is free from the need to calculate results. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. True service is indiscriminate in its ministry. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. True service ministers simply and faithfully because there is a need. I want you to know if you're not reading that Bible then it's not worth very much to you. And going to church isn't all it's cracked up to be if you're not going there for the right reasons either. You see, there's so many things that are symbols, but that aren't the reality. And we think if we have enough symbols, we'll have the reality. But how many of us serve? How many of us pray? How many of us confess Christ? How many of us live the life? What would we be without the symbols? What if we were persecuted in the assembly? What if we were in prison? Would we be singing hymns? How about that? Have you ever thought about that? What if I was in prison? Would I, like Peter and Paul, be singing hymns? Or would I be humming the country tunes that are on the music? What is it? What do we think about? You see, 
What are we all? What are we without all of the trappings? What if it was against the law to be a Christian? What if we couldn't assemble here? What if we couldn't have a copy of the scriptures? What would we be then? That's the issue. And so Paul says, excuse me, Jesus often challenged his audiences upon these occasions to make sure that they understood the issue as character and not symbols, not pretense, not something that was not the true thing. Bynes goes on to define a hypocrite as pretending to be something you're not and have no intention of being. We're going to make a better definition of that in just a moment, but stay with us. Hypocrisy is pretended motives. Notice, acting spiritual in order to cover up sins. In Matthew, the 23rd chapter, going on down to verse 27... Notice, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. We've quoted that. He says, so too, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Lawlessness means unprincipled, that you are not governed. You have no boundaries in your heart and in your life. Do you have boundaries that keep you from behaving certain ways? Oh, Glenn, I just lost it. That temptation was too much to bear. God says, listen, that lawlessness is a sign of the real authentic, the real authentic Christianity. A Christian is somebody who has inner boundaries, who practices inner boundaries, who won't allow themselves to lose it, who don't allow environment to cause them to lose it, will not find excuses for them to lose it, to go beyond the boundaries of which they have allowed the Lord to place in their hearts and in their minds. With their angry, with their anger, with their lust. What boundaries do you have when nobody in the church is going to catch you? The brethren aren't the boundary. Your character needs to be the boundary. You should be more afraid of God than you are the brethren. That's my point. That's where a Christian is, is when he's concerned not about the cops, not about spiritual or moral cops. He's afraid about displeasing God. That is the sign of authentic Christianity. Notice. <clears throat> oh, well, there's so much. Look, Romans 12. Let's just read this one and we'll go on to the next point. Romans the 12th chapter. <clears throat> Romans the 12th chapter. We're going to start reading verse 9 and verse 10. Notice what he says here. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Oh, listen, he describes the Christian's character here in this passage. He says, here's the attitudes a Christian has in these circumstances. They rejoice, they bless their enemies. Do you bless your enemies or do you curse your enemies? What kind of response do you have to people who disagree with you? What kind of problems do you have? Are you these kinds of person? Do you bless them? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Do you weep with those who weep? Notice, let love be without hypocrisy. It's so easy to say that we love when in reality we don't. The Bible says, let love be without hypocrisy. My friends, there is the true test of character. Love 
Love has a certain kind of response to others. The Bible describes it in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is patient. Stop saying you love someone if you're not patient with them. Love is kind. If you're not kind to them, stop deceiving yourself into thinking that you love them. If you are unkind with your children, and my friends, here's the point about child abuse, and I want to get very clear about this. I've not had that much. I, I, or excuse me, I don't know that much about this area. But I do know in different areas of countries, it seems that different problems are preeminent in the culture. And I have had Christian parents justify child abuse under somehow saying it's godly in its behavior. Whenever really questioned about this, now, my, if there's anybody, I thought I'd hear an amen on that one. <laughs> but I'll tell you what my dad did before he spanked us. There was only one time that I know of, that I'm conscious of, I'll put it that way, in my life where my dad hit me before he thought first or slapped me, and it was because he thought I had injured my mother. More often than not, here's the process. There was the confrontation, the lecture, then the punishment. <laughs> my dad was very clear. You know the rules. You violated the rules. Here's the consequences. Yeah, yeah, just get it over with. <laughs> knew what was coming. The whole point, none of us ever questioned the love of our father. You can ask that of all of us. kids. And, and we got spankings regular with meals. We thought that that was why we did it, you know. <laughs> Some of us here know too much. <laughs> but the whole point is sometimes we, most of the time we deserved it. That's the whole point. But the whole point, we never questioned that. We never questioned that. His love was without hypocrisy. But I tell you what, whenever you beat your kids to make yourself feel better, and there's no edifying for the child, it's wrong. He believed in spankings. It was my dad. When you do it for your reasons, rather than for their welfare, then it's abuse. Real good way to test, to see if you've gone over the line. Real good way to test. And that's what I'm talking about here. Don't say you love somebody and then justify it. If I love them, I'm going to treat them mean. I'm going to be unjust. Don't you dare justify satanic behavior in the name of my God, my Father. Don't you dare do that. Don't you dare abuse your children, your husband, your wife. In the name of God. Don't you dare do it. Love does not think of self whenever it acts. Love thinks of the object, the good of the object. Remember Philippians 2, 3 through 5? The Bible says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is that? Look out for one another's interest above your own. That's why parents discipline their children. That's why they instruct them, is for the child's welfare and benefit. And when it's for your benefit instead of for theirs, it's wrong. It's a real good way to test it. God didn't give you the ability to spank your children to help you relieve stress. It isn't a good stress relief pro. Boy, I feel better. My friends, it's not for you feeling better. It's to train the children. So anyway, I want to get off of that. But perhaps that's here. I don't know. Nobody, by the way, nobody's told me that there's a problem about that here. So I don't want to say anything. 
You know, you know within your heart whenever you chastise your children, whether it's for their benefit or for yours. Yeah, you know. And that's what I'm saying here. Let love be without hypocrisy. When you correct brothers and sisters in Christ, you know whether it's for their welfare or for yours. You know for whether you're trying to put them down so that your light will shine brighter or if it really is because you're concerned about their soul. You know what the motive really is. On in this passage, well, there's so many more, but we're going to have to get to the second trait right quick. We're going to have to skip on. Notice the second trait of hypocrisy is really clear. clear. A hypocrite carefully practices, carefully practices religious acts. I don't have time to bring it up. While his heart remains distant from God. Heart distant. Now we've already emphasized this. And so we're not going to spend an awful lot of time on it. But just suffice it to say that one of the definitions of a hypocrite that Vine says was that a hypocrite is somebody who plays a part but never intends on being really what that part suggests. In other words, there are some people who practice form of godliness but deny its power really in their life. This is the hypocrite. The hypocrite has details without depth. Details without depth. They tithe mint and herbs, as we've noticed last night, herbs, but ignore justice and mercy and faith. They strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, my friends, they are into details. Their details and, and their biases are vital to them. Notice, and, and we want to notice this, this verse doesn't talk about just, and by the way, just because we're talking about something that is a shortcoming in someone's life doesn't mean they're necessarily a hypocrite. Just because somebody is disobedient doesn't mean they're a hypocrite. This may be a revelation to some because oftentimes we want to point to somebody who's being disobedient and we say they're a hypocrite when in reality they're not hypocrites. They're disobedient. And maybe they've fallen short. But my friends, they are not part playing. They are wrestling with temptation and sometimes they lose. But God tells us that a hypocrite truly is distant from God. In other words, they are really not into the motives at all. In Psalms 85 verse 10, Psalm 85 verse 10, (coughs) loving and kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks, looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its, yield its pro, produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. The Bible here says loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is the reality of Christianity. Whenever we come, whenever we come to work with one another within a congregation... If God is there, there is peace. If God is there, loving kindness and all of these things work together. That's what a man who pleases the Lord will make even his enemies to be at peace with him. How do we do this? How do we do this? It's because we don't, you know, whenever we really are concerned about somebody, they know that. That's what we call money in the bank. Money in the bank. 
whenever we really try to encourage someone, when we show them loving favor, when we have served them, when we have given them cups of cold water, when we have shown and proved our love for them by going two miles with them and not just one, whenever we've been there in the good times, then whenever it comes time for correction, we've got money in the bank. We've proven our love. And a congregation, it doesn't, just because they have peace doesn't mean everybody's mature. Often in a growing congregation, there's mature people and immature people. There are people who are good examples and people who are bad examples. But there's no arrogance. There's no schism between the good, the, the mature and the immature. There's no, why? Because the younger are trying to help those who are younger. The older, if I can get it right, the older are trying to help those who are younger. That's what it is. Whenever we're in our family, whenever we're trying to teach our children to, to ride a bike, we're there going along with them, hopefully. We're trying to help them grow, discover their talents, and rejoice with them whenever they learn to do new things. We're not threatened by them whenever they learn to do new things. But sometimes in church trouble, there is envy and strife and division because people are threatened when other other people grow in abilities and talents and maybe become a more popular teacher than someone else. And I've seen the differences like that divide congregations. And that's a shame. It's a sign of hypocrisy being there. Because whenever, the kind, whenever all of these things come together, everybody's really working together for everyone else's welfare. So let's be careful to not be overly picky. Let's, and I don't mean not concerned about someone else's welfare. I'm just trying to say overly critical. You know, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, I always misquote this path, or where it is. So I, I have to find it right quick. There it is. Proverbs 17 and verse 20. The Bible says, He who has a crooked mind finds no good. Do people cringe when they see you coming because you never give compliments, but every time you open up your mouth, it's a criticism? It's been said between husbands and wives that a lot of times the men are surprised that their wives are so depressed. Why are they so surprised? Well, I don't know. I just try to help her to be a good wife. I try to help her all the time. I give her a list of everything that she's falling short of. I, you know, I just have, I try to be so helpful to him. I point out everything that he's fun, coming short in and I don't know why he doesn't appreciate me. I just don't know why. You know, it's really for his good. All of my, you know, fault finding, all of my criticism, they just don't appreciate me. Well, really, maybe you've not earned the right to criticize. It's been said for every one criticism, you need to have seven compliments. Or at least that's what my wife tells me. The whole point here is there's something real about that. There's something very real about that. Have you ever thought about that? I'm serious with your children. Is the only time you communicate with them is when they've done something wrong. No wonder they don't want to talk to you. No wonder. Make sure in our Christianity... If you're going to try to be qualified to hand out a criticism, make sure you've qualified yourself by handing out some compliments and some encouragement, some encouragement along the way. And then you'll earn, you'll have money in the bank. 
whenever it comes your time to correct those who are wrong. You know, there are some people that can say it and get away with it, and some people that can say the very same thing and not get away with it. I wonder what it is. Perhaps it's because you know that whenever somebody criticizes you, if they love you, you know it. And you know it when they're just being critical. You know it. So, brethren in the church, don't just justify yourself by saying, it's true and it's right. And I don't know why the brethren don't appreciate all the criticism I give. Perhaps because you're not looking for, you're, perhaps you're disobeying Philippians 4.8. One of the most disobeyed passages in the Bible. Whatsoever things are good, virtuous, praiseworthy, think on these things. Whenever you do that, you'll earn the right to be a, a concern whenever it comes your lot. Okay. <coughs> Let me give you one example of this. In Luke, the 13th chapter, we find that there were some people who were critical of what Jesus did on the Sabbath day. In Luke, the 13th chapter, verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And Jesus saw her and he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days and with the work can be done, so come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey or his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from his bond on the Sabbath day? And he said all this, all his opponents being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things being done by him. Now, my friends, Jesus didn't violate the Sabbath. And he was not justifying himself by his statement. You can never violate the word of God justly. And Jesus wasn't doing that here. He said they were violating some of their human traditions and customs by healing her on the Sabbath. But they had got, forgotten the whole point. That the Sabbath was so that men could focus on the proper and spiritual things. And they had failed to do that on this occasion. This woman was healed. And they were looking in the face of a miracle and accusing Jesus of violating the will of God. How did they get so messed up? Because they were so careful. They forgot to go. They forgot to get the spirit. The spirit of what God's law was trying to reveal. And that was the heart and the mind of God. I'll have to be careful, and you have to be careful when you're explaining these passages. Not, the Bible never justifies disobedience, but I want to point out, Jesus wasn't disobeying here again. It's just that he had disobeyed their interpretation of the law, and they had made it of none effect, like they did other things as well. But thirdly, let's get to the third point right here. Third point, and I don't have a place to write it, so... I know some of the kids are taking notes tonight, and that's why I'd want to try to write up here. But I'll just try to put the word emphasize here.
emphasize their own virtues and others' sin. That's what that is there. A hypocrite emphasizes their own virtue and others' sins. Often, in hypocrisy, you're going to find someone who finds it to be clear-cut. They look at others with a black and white glasses. They can see clearly other people's sins. But themselves, their own sins, they don't even call them sins for themselves. They call them weaknesses. Yeah, I have a weakness. It's genetic. My mother was that way. You know, I'm that way too. We were raised that way in the South. We were raised to have these attitudes. We were raised to have that attitude. We were raised... I don't care how we were raised. Jesus says, hey, now you're a son or daughter of God. You're supposed to reflect His fatherhood. Doesn't matter how you were raised. I know some kids who were raised horribly that are great Christians. And I know some kids of great Christians that act horribly. Genetics doesn't have anything to do with it. Being raised doesn't have anything to do with it either. That's what happens sometimes. You can't pass on morality, whether it be sin, you can't inherit sin, and you can't inherit righteousness. I don't care how virtuous your mother or your father is. That doesn't make you virtuous or horrible. He who has a crooked mind finds no good. The whole point is, is how do you behave in your humility before God? Are you finding yourself always emphasizing your own virtue and somebody else's sinfulness? Because you know what? If you can find somebody else worse than you, that must mean you're good. Right? No. You see, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. It doesn't matter how, how many times have you talked to somebody and they say, well, Glenn, if I believed that, that would send my mother to hell. Believing something is going to send your mother to hell or send your father to heaven. Guess what? What you believe doesn't have any impact on their eternal destiny one way or another. And regardless of how many millions you're better than, that doesn't make you good. By default. That doesn't make your character good. You know, you can find a whole lot of people that are worse than you. So what? It's a real sign of immaturity whenever you go comparing yourself always to other people. That's a real sign that you haven't got a clue about what Christianity is about. It's a real sign of hypocrisy when you're always comparing yourself to other people and not to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one you're following. Notice in Romans, the second chapter. In Romans, the second chapter, verse 1 and 2. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, and we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, it's been so sad to me whenever I notice uh, people, uh, especially on certain websites, and, and I've studied with people through the, the age, that are always, they're really upset about the church, and they left the church over what some hypocrite did. Now, I've had brother tell me, I went down to Texas and studied with a preacher who fell away, and you know what, he, all he could preach about was how unloving the brotherhood was. Have you ever met those people? 
Oh, Glenn, the brotherhood's so unloving. They're so unkind. All they, can, all they talk about, they just gossip about the people. They just badmouth everybody and everything else. I just held up a mirror and I go, you want to look? All you preach about is how bad the brotherhood is. That's all you can preach about. <laughs> you who condemn another and practice the very same thing yourself. That's all they could think about. All they could say was how bad everybody in the brotherhood was. So what? That's the whole point. Are you praising them? Are you going to church to worship them or worship him? You know, it doesn't matter to me if the whole crowd is a bunch of hypocrites. I didn't come to worship them. The reason why I go to church is because God deserves my worship. He needs to deserve my loyalty. He deserves my obedience. And I'm going because he's who he is. And that's why we need to do what we need to do. It doesn't matter if your mother's a hypocrite. It doesn't matter if your father's a hypocrite. It doesn't matter if the leaders in the church are hypocrites and don't behave like they should behave. It doesn't matter. That's the whole point. You need to do things because it's the right thing to do. And you need to put yourself under the same scrutiny that you put others under. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 1 through 5. Matthew 7, verse 1 through 5. I'm going just a little bit longer tonight, but I've got to finish this up. Matthew 7, verse 1 through 5. <clears throat> do not judge that you be not judged. For in the way you judge, do you will be judged. In your standard or measure, it shall be measured to you. There's no telling how many times I've had that verse read to me. And you know what? It's really ironic that the person who's reading it to me is violating the very verse that they're reading to me. Isn't that ironic? What are they doing? They're saying, now listen, Glenn, you know the Bible says not to judge. The Bible says right there, don't you judge. And I say, and you're judging that I'm violating that passage? <laughs> Aren't you doing the very thing that you say that verse is teaching against? Yes. But my friends, whenever God's word is used, it's not us that's judging. Jesus said, my words will judge you in that day. And whenever you share with somebody the word of God, did you know you're not judging at all? You're a bigoted church. You condemn homosexuality. No, you know what? It doesn't have anything to do. I didn't vote on homosexualities, whether it should be in the church or out of the church. Did you? If you had a vote on it, then you may or may not be a bigot. But guess what? I didn't have a vote. God told me in Romans, the first chapter, and in 1 Corinthians 6, that homosexuality is a sin, and he didn't ask me to vote on it. This is his word. He will judge. His word will judge in the last day. Don't condemn the church of being a bunch of bigots whenever the real problem you're having is with the author of the book. You take it up with him, not with the church. You don't accuse the church of that. We don't, the church is not judging when it preaches the word of God. The words tell us what is right and what is wrong and tell us what righteousness is and isn't. And I didn't get a vote. This isn't my church. This is not your church. This is the Lord's church. And if the Lord isn't the head of this church, we need not be here. But the Lord is the head of the church. It's his church. If you've got a problem with what this church believes, take it up with the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Because he is the head of his church, Ephesians. That's right. So, a hypocrite tears down others in order to build up himself. Jesus.
calls us to use righteous discernment in our judgments. We need, we need not to become insensitive to the plight of others. And I just want and then I'm going to wrap it up here. I've got to wrap it up. I want to just say these last few things and then we'll bring it to a close. If you've got your, your Bibles, I want you to turn to a passage in Thessalonians right quick and then, and then we'll just wrap it up. Uh, I thought it was right here, 1 Thessalonians. No, it's right here. Well, ah, there it is. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. No matter what translation you're reading, let's turn and look at this passage for just a moment. Notice how he tells us that there's three different problems and they're to be handled in three different ways. So let's read the passage the way we often apply it. Notice, and we urge you, verse 14, and we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, admonish the faint-hearted, admonish the weak. Be fa- no, it's not what it says. Notice what it says. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. Now my friends, there may be sin problems in someone's life, and the Bible doesn't tell them that you handle all of them with a stick. If you're that kind of parent where you handle every problem with your children with a stick, you're not doing it right. Because our Heavenly Father doesn't do it that way. He saves the stick for the unruly. Admonish the unruly. But he says, help the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted. Maybe somebody's sinning because they need encouragement. Maybe somebody's needing help. Be patient with all men. We have to determine why somebody is at where they're at. God tells us to use that wisdom or these words have no instructive purpose whatsoever. If you go to help other people, you have to help by determining why they have sin problems in their life and then apply these prescriptions to the problem. And if you don't, you don't need to be there. This is God's wisdom. And He says handle different problems in different ways. So we have to put on ourselves a heart of compassion whenever we go to people in sin. We have to figure out, we have to help them figure out why they're at, where they're at and then prescribe, and then help them develop what they need in order to survive spiritually. Because we're not there just to tell them off. We're there to help them survive. We're to help them overcome. We're part of the support group, not part of the problem. How sad it is when people fear Christians more than they fear God sometimes. My friends, we need to be able to be helpful to each other, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that some people are looking out for us spiritually. So, let's look at the way the difference between a genuine, somebody who has the character and the mind of Christ behaves and the way a hypocrite behaves. A hypocrite pays more attention to reputation than character. Whenever they get their applause, my friends, it's, God says they got their reward. You got what you were after. But a true servant, a true authentic Christian, serves when nobody's watching. A careful, uh, a, a hypocrite makes, pays careful attention to, oftentimes, to acts of religion, to the symbols, but their heart remains a distant, distant from God, not even understanding of the requirements and why God put them in there. 
Thirdly, a hypocrite emphasizes their own virtues and other sinfulness. And there are many examples of that. There was the one in Luke where one went before God. He obviously was a good guy. God, I fast twice daily. I give gifts to the poor. I do this, that, and the other. In other words, he's basically saying, God, you got a great guy down here. And I'm thankful I'm not like this publican. Oh, that betrayed his character. Oh, right there. There's the rift. There's the rift. That attitude never crosses the mind of our God. It never crossed the mind of Jesus to put somebody down and to build up and puff up his own character. Jesus had no pride. No self-righteous pride. He didn't find any delight. He didn't find any comfort in recognizing that other people were inferior to him at all. I'm thankful I'm not like him. The other man smote him to breast said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which man went down to his house justified? One of them was a hypocrite. One of them wasn't. What kind are we? What kind are we here today? You know, please don't get offended at this parallel, but this is a Sinners Anonymous meeting. This is not a club for perfect people. We're not here because we're better than somebody else. We're here acknowledging the fact that we need to be instructed, acknowledging the fact that we need to be encouraged to do better. Encourage, notice we're here because we need to be encouraged to love and good works. We know that we fall short, and that's why we're here. We're here to acknowledge the fact that we're human, and we need to grow and become more spiritually minded. That we need to make any difference between the character of Christ and our character, any distinction, we need to close that gap. And we're here to try and do that. And my friends, that's something far different than pride. We're here basically acknowledging, I'm here to learn to do better. I'm here to do better and to encourage other people to do better. That's what I'm here for. That's what this is all about tonight. And you know what? If you're here and a visitor tonight, I want you to know something. I think I know most of these brethren pretty well. I don't know everybody, but I know one thing that's probably because I've been around most of them most of my life, uh, most of you in one way or another. And you know what? I think everybody here is trying to do better. I think, I think you're going to find here, if you're a visitor here, you're not going to have to worry about being here. These brethren have your interest at heart, and they're wanting you to succeed spiritually. And won't you come and join with us on our journey? We need your help. We need your insight. We need your knowledge of the Word of God. And my friends, we will share our knowledge with you. But my friends, we need all the help we can get on that journey. And we would love to have you join with us in the quest of being more pure in our character than we've ever been before. We want to have a better, we want to honor God in all that uh, that's way. We're not asking you to feel inferior tonight and be judged by a bunch of perfect people as to whether you're worthy to join this group. That's not what it's about. Everybody here has a humble heart, I'm sure, and is willing to welcome you into the journey of striving to do those things which please God. So tonight, you don't have to worry. You're going to find a helpful bunch here that are dedicated to helping you survive spiritually. Dr. Paul Faulkner, commenting on hypocrisy, and I want to read this last thing. I want to make it very clear what I just said about the church, and I want he clarifies it very good in this quote. He said, Hypocrisy is pretending to be something you never intend to become, or another way around. 
He said, If we are sincerely trying to become something better, more Christ-like, even though we're far from doing it perfectly, it is not being phony to make the effort. It's not being phony to make the effort. There's a difference between somebody who's trying and somebody who's a hypocrite. Just because somebody sins doesn't automatically make them a hypocrite. And just because somebody has all the trappings of perfection doesn't make them a Christian either. Point is, what are we trying to do? Where are we headed? What's our motive? Where are we going? But trying doesn't make you phony. So tonight, come and join us, won't you? In your faith, repent of your sins. Confess His sweet name before men, Matthew 10, 32, and be baptized for the remission of sins. Join us on that journey if you haven't before. If you're a Christian, perhaps somebody's hypocrisy has caused you to be disheartened. Perhaps you focused on them instead of on the Lord. Tonight, refocus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, instead of on people. Get, your pride. Get, get the person you're worshiping down right. Get the person you're following in their steps down right. Even Paul said, be ye followers of me as I am of Christ. He was following Jesus, my friends. So let's get who we're following down right. Tonight, won't you come and join us in our effort to follow Jesus? We may not be perfect, but we're trying. Why don't you try to? We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.